This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. The uh, QAnon uh, conspiracy theory, and it's almost like a conspiracy movement, and I think the July 6th insurrection is an example of that. I mean, it's very specifically American in a lot of aspects, without getting too into it. For whatever reason, it it still thrives, despite the fact that all of these predictions they made uh, really didn't come to pass. And it's pretty obvious, uh, based on a recent documentary, the individual who was posting as Q. Nonetheless, this this conspiracy theory has built up a following outside of the United States. And a very interesting story today at Vice News on a Canadian manifestation of this conspiracy theory. A woman in Canada who claims that that she has been appointed, installed as the real, true ruler of Canada by the same forces that uh, this QAnon conspiracy theory speaks of in the U.S. Now, that might just seem like some weird random person making a, a silly claim, but she's got a following. A growing following, a following in the thousands. And these followers aren't just reading and and listening to her. They're taking action. So it's a weird story, but there's certainly some concern, I think, behind where this is all headed. Mac Lammer is a reporter for Vice News and covers a lot of these conspiracy and extremist groups and movements. He's got the details up at uh, vice.com today on this wild story and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Matt, thanks so much, or Mac, rather, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Well, I appreciate you making some time for us. So like I say, this is a pretty wild read. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of go through this. But first of all, mm-hmm. in the context of understanding this story, without getting too into the weeds, what do we need to know about the QAnon theory? Yes. So the best thing to know about the QAnon theories and kind of the broad strokes would be President Trump, well, not president anymore, but former President Donald Trump and his allies are waging a secret war against a international cabal of elitist pedophiles um, who are doing a wide range of, you know, really unpleasant things. And this is kind of a big tent conspiracy, meaning there's a lot of different moving parts within it and a lot of different kinds of movements all within its scope. And that's kind of where we get to today, where we have a woman claiming to be Queen of Canada and building a following. Right. And it's odd that she's the Queen mm-hmm. of the, Re- what are they calling it, the Republic of Canada, yeah. which might seem a little incongruous, but uh, nonetheless. So mm-hmm. she's claiming that my understanding is so the same forces that were apparently going to keep Donald Trump in power or reinstate mm-hmm. him to power, none of which has obviously happened, but these same shadowy forces have basically installed her as the leader of Canada. That's what she's claiming. Yeah, so essentially she's saying that she's kind of been put in place as a holdover as the secret military forces are moving through province to province and 
ending this kind of pandemic, what they believe. And she's saying that as the as the provinces start to open up, as what we know is because of vaccine rollout and the drop in spread of COVID-19 is actually because the military is starting to take over these provinces. Um, it's a hard one to rationalize, but it's one that a lot of you, a lot of people are believing. Well, and that's where this gets interesting, because I'm sure mm-hmm. if we looked hard enough, we could find all kinds of weird, random people with all sorts yeah. of, you know, grandiose ideas about things, or, you know, I'm, I'm secretly this, or I'm secretly that. How is what what led to this woman building up a, a following of of thousands of people literally who who are buying into this? That's actually kind of the most important thing to take away from this story is before about two weeks ago, uh, Romana Didalo, who is her name, was posting these videos to pretty relatively little fanfare, uh, and she wasn't able to build up a following until several well-known kind of QAnon influencers, you could call them, people with big followings on kind of off-brand sites like Rumble and BitChute um, and Gab, uh, confirmed her, so to say, saying that she is correct, that what she's saying is true. Uh, Essentially, she fit into their conspiracy, so they said that she's an active person in this. And through that, thousands of people flock towards her kind of organizing channels. And now we see she has 20,000 followers on Telegram, and that's turned into these splinter cells with, or I wouldn't call them cells, but these splinter groups within each province that have hundreds of people in them. Obviously, not all these people are active, but there is quite a few. So she kind of got like the, the blessing or the endorsement, obviously, then of mm-hmm. some established figures in this, this QAnon movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then, essentially... Yeah. They were kingmakers in this. They chose her because she fit the conspiracy, and that is solely the reason why she blew up. Um, whether or not she believes what she's saying or is it, or it's a grift is unknown, but it's not because of her she's so big. It's because she got kind of handpicked by these influencers. Okay, and so these people who are following her, and this is where the story gets weird, because it's one thing if people are sitting around watching these YouTube videos, but Mm -hmm. people are going out into the real world, and they're taking videos of themselves. In fact, I think this happened to a bunch of businesses in, I believe it was Cochrane here in Alberta recently. Mm -hmm. What's the deal then with these cease and desist notices that, that followers are distributing to businesses, police stations, government offices? Yeah, so the her large community is kind of, manifesting themselves around this large cease and desist order notice they're actively organizing around this she's printed up this pdf saying that under the decree of the new queen of canada all businesses and government offices must stop all sorts of activities planned or that are kind of correspond with the pandemic which means quarantining actively testing for it vaccinations you name it Uh, And they're handing these out to businesses, and essentially we're seeing this happen all over uh, in Thornhill, Ontario, Langley, B.C., Cochrane, Edmonton, Calgary, Red Deer, my hometown of Fort Saskatchewan. It's all over the place. Um, And I wouldn't say there's hundreds of people in the country that are handing these out, but definitely hundreds of these notices have gone out, and uh, the movement seems to be growing, so... It's a little concerning. At the moment, what they're doing is rather innocuous. They're just handing out cease and desist letters. Um, But we've seen how quickly these kind of groups can go off the rails. So hopefully it remains like that. Well, that's that's the thing, right? I mean, you know, someone hands you a piece of paper. It's 
pretty innocuous. You can crumple it up and, and have a good chuckle. But if if these followers are willing to do this at her behest, mm-hmm. and you talk about it in, in your story, though, some of the things she has said that, you know, the people who disobey these orders, uh, you know, that they're going to be in, in some big trouble. And it's much like mm-hmm. the, the QAnon movement. There's all these fantasies about executions, etc. And that's that's something she talks a lot about. Yeah, one of the main things I think driving her popularity after the people discovered her via these QAnon influencers is the fact that she speaks so openly about wanting to execute people that don't follow kind of her decrees or these wanting to kill the people that they think are kind of doing this international secret cabal that is at the heart of the QAnon movement. Um, And she speaks very openly of if you break the the law, you're going to get sentenced to death. Anybody who commits fraud against her is going to be sentenced to death. Execution is a big running theme within her videos and her posts, and it seems to be probably the biggest rallying cry for her um, for her fan base. I spoke to mm-hmm. one person uh, who follows her and asked them what they think about this, and they essentially said, well, if everything is true, they're going to get what they deserve. So it's a little unpleasant. To say the least. No kidding. Well, and, and here's the thing. One of the videos in your story is, is one of these followers who actually went in. I, I think maybe it's the Peterborough, Ontario police station as best mm-hmm. I could tell. But it's a police station somewhere. So when yeah. you go in and, and, you know, you're basically announcing your presence, it's a good way to get yourself on, on police radar. But do we know, you know, whether police are aware of this, how seriously they're taking this? I have to imagine they're relatively aware of this. I know that in Cochrane, B.C., uh, as you mentioned earlier, there was a pretty rowdy group of them going from business to business. They were taking videos, celebrating. But they actually went to a K-8 through school there where children were actively there and they were handing out these pamphlets and anti-vaccine pamphlets. Uh, and the police were actually called and these people received trespassing tickets. So at the very least, they're aware on a very surface level as to what they're doing about it uh, is unknown at the moment. Yeah, it's quite a story. Now, <laughs> when we were chatting earlier, you made reference to to kind of the reaction to this story no. today. Uh, I, I guess you're now on their radar. I mean, what, what kind of reaction have you been getting? Well, I'm probably one of the first up against the wall, as she truly is the queen. Um, but, you know, I probably had that coming for a long time. Um, they're not too happy. A lot of them haven't seen it yet, so I'm kind of a little nervous for when they do. But... I've been covering this for a long time, from neo-Nazis to, you know, the soldiers of Odin to QAnon to all over the place. And it's all you just you kick the hive and you wait for the half-life to be over and uh, kind of <laughs> grin through the, prump, the punches. Yeah. All right. Well, this is one to keep an eye on. But uh, much more is mentioned at Vice.com. Mac, thanks so much. Make some time for us here this afternoon. Much appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Likewise, all the best. Mac Lambrou is a reporter with uh, Vice News, Vice.com. So, yeah, quite a wild read uh, up uh, today at Vice.com on uh, our new queen. You know, again, I mean, this would be just such a random, you know, back corner of the Internet. So someone's posting videos claiming that she's been secretly installed as the, the queen of Canada. Who cares? So how does that translate into someone building up thousands of followers? How does that translate into hundreds of people going around to businesses, schools, police stations, government offices, handing out these cease and desist orders at the behest of this woman, claiming fealty to this woman? It's very bizarre and potentially concerning.
again, she's made no bones about the fact that she believes uh, those that uh, break these uh, laws that she's declaring should be executed. Military firing squad, she says in one of her videos. Um, yeah, look, I mean, let's hope that the people who are prepared to hand out these papers, uh, that's as far as they're prepared to go. But I think this is worth keeping an eye on. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Thursday afternoon. So we do see, I, I think, unfortunately, from time to time, goofy trends in, in education and, and curriculum design. And, uh, you know, hopefully there's an opportunity for common sense to prevail. Alberta is going through a curriculum review, and obviously some of what the government's proposing to do has been controversial. But uh, I think, you know, when it comes to math education in particular, there is and has been a need to rebalanced, have the pendulum swinging the other way, because I think we did go too far uh, down the roads of uh, one of these particular trends. But the story out of Vancouver today really caught my attention. And I, I hope this isn't a sign of things to come here. This is the story in the Globe and Mail today. The Vancouver School Board is cutting honors courses in math and science in its high schools because the school district says they do not comply with the equity and inclusion goal of ensuring that all students can participate in every aspect of the curriculum. Teachers will instead be encouraged to teach individual students' capabilities, to teach to those capabilities, including those who excel at math and science. The parents of gifted students say the children will lose the opportunity to dive deeper into maths and sciences without being ostracized in regular classrooms because of their abilities. Vancouver School Board says the new curriculum mandates an inclusive model of education so that all students will be able to participate in the curriculum fulsomely. This makes no sense to me at all. Look, the very fact that we have public education is, by its nature, inclusive. And yes, public schools need to recognize the different learning needs of students. This is the opposite of that, though. This is taking away the ability for schools to address the learning needs of one particular group. So this is not inclusive, I don't think. What are the implications of going down this path? Well, joining us to talk more about this important issue, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, someone who has a, a... very much uh, a vested interest in all of this and uh, follows all of this very closely. Uh, Anna Stokey is a professor of mathematics, chair of the Department of Mathematics uh, at the University of Winnipeg. He is also one of the co-founders of Wise Math, the Western Initiative for Strengthening Education in Math, and co-founder, president of the nonprofit uh, Archimedes Math Schools. Uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Stokey, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, I, I mean, first of all, is, is this a, a trend you've been noticing or hearing about elsewhere? Were you as, as surprised maybe as some of us were to read about this in Vancouver? Well, I have heard educators speak about this sort of thing. Um, I am surprised and I would say very disappointed to see that Vancouver is going this way. Why is it important in your view to have these kinds of programs in schools? Well, I think um, I think it's really important, and I, I actually would argue that one of the points of advanced programs is to actually create more inclusion and opportunities for underprivileged students who excel. Because what's going to happen? There, you know, we'll always have we'll always have kids who need more challenge and breeze through the curriculum. And what will happen if there aren't advanced programs in public schools? 
is that those parents who can actually afford it will pay for outside enrichment or go to private schools. And the parents whose kids can't afford it will have no option for their, their advanced students. Right. So, yeah, as you say, I mean, that does create potentially more inequity. And for the students then who, uh, you know, don't have that option, who remain in the public schools, this idea that they're going to, I mean, the teachers are going to try to, to tailor their instruction for each student and each individual need of, of each right. student, uh, yeah. this, this seems very unworkable to me. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's, I mean, I don't, I don't see that, that happening. Um, when you have a, a classroom full of, of kids all at different levels, I think it's going to be exactly those advanced students whose needs are going to get sacrificed because teachers are going to naturally be more concerned about the kids that are struggling. And the, the students who are excelling, well, they've already hit the curricular outcomes, right? So they will be just sort of left to their own devices. And what happens to those kids? And, you know, as you say, they, they need, um, you know, additional enrichment. They, they need to have programs that are targeted to them. If they don't have it, what, what happens? Well, I think a few things can happen. I mean, kids get bored, right, if they're, if they're not challenged in school, if they're breezing through the curriculum. And, and some of these kids, they really want more math. They want more challenge. That's, that's what they really love to do. They might start acting out. But I would say even it's, it's a problem just in terms of society. It's very important for society in, that we nurture advanced students. These advanced students, they become our scientists, our mathematicians of tomorrow. They're the ones that come up with COVID vaccines and yeah. technological advances. So it's really important to keep these programs in schools. It is. And, and what seems odd to me about it here, I mean, it almost seems like there's a notion that, you know, gifted is is linked to privilege somehow. Right. Uh, by, by, you know, having programs for gifted kids that, that somehow that, that's preferential treatment. Obviously, as you say, I mean, being gifted is not a, a product of, of, of privilege. I mean, you know, there are kids who, who are gifted learners and, and they're just kind of born that way, right? Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think that it is linked to privilege. I think that what happens is that parents, again, who have more resources, they are able to get extra help for their kids if it's not being offered in the schools. That's why it's important to be, off, to be offering these enrichment programs in public schools. I would argue that they should be offered starting in elementary school. Yeah, and I mean, and that's the concern here. I mean, once we establish the, the notion that, you know, something is not inclusive, that, that's, that's a very powerful signal. So, I, I mean, should we be worried that once this sentiment starts to take hold, that what we're seeing in Vancouver, we could start to see elsewhere? Well, we might. I would hope that, I would hope that parents would, would stand up to this, that they would speak up and speak up for their children. I mean, there are a lot of people who won't be able to afford the, the extra help that their kids need. There will be parents that essentially spend way more than they can afford on, on private schools and things like that. We do need to, we need, we do need to demand that these, these kids are getting what they need in the public school system. Absolutely. Well, we'll continue to keep a close eye on this. We appreciate your input and your insight on all of this here today, Dr. Stokey. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Much appreciated. All the best. That is uh, Dr. Anna Stokey, uh, professor and chair of the Department of Mathematics at the University of Winnipeg, uh, one of the co-founders of WiseMath, wisemath.org. That's the Western Initiative for Strengthening Education in Math. 
So she's been one of the voices that's been at the forefront of this conversation when it comes to the math curriculum and the idea of so-called discovery math. So some interesting uh, thoughts from her on this whole situation. So, yeah, I mean, as a layman, this makes no sense. Obviously, for someone who's, you know, in the position that Dr. Stokey's in, I mean, she, she doesn't see any sense in this either. There was an interesting quote in the Globe and Mail here. Uh, Dr. Owen Lowe, who's a special education expert at UBC and has done some specific research when it comes to gifted learners, disagreed with the decision to cut honors courses, called the move radical, oversimplified, and irresponsible. It says, I don't think the response should be canceling the whole programming. It's not a sensible way. It's about addressing the equity issue within the program rather than canceling. It says teachers may already be struggling to meet the needs of multi-level classrooms. Well, of course they would be. You know, in a different context, we'd be slamming the, the government for dumping more on, onto teachers. So when you have courses and classes and programs for advanced learners, that's there for a reason. And there's a benefit to that. It's like any other kind of programming in school that's designed to meet certain, certain learning needs. The more of that you have, the more accommodating the schools are, the more accepting schools are, and the more kids have opportunity uh, to reach their best potential at an individual level. So th this seems completely backwards to me. You know, it's almost like we're punishing these kids from being gifted, and that's the complete wrong way to look at it. That's just what their learning needs are. We want kids to thrive, right? Don't we? Isn't that one of the uh, objectives here? And it's to create the circumstances where kids can thrive, regardless of their situation, regardless of their learning needs. This just flies in the face of that. And it seems, I got to say, very, very political. And that's not helpful. Anyway, your thoughts, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back with more right after this. Well, even the mayor today acknowledging that uh, this is maybe making mischief uh, with the province, but th th there is a, an underlying issue that, that should be addressed. Does Calgary, or do municipalities in general, Calgary specifically, does Calgary get a fair deal from the province? Now, this fall, the municipal election will obviously be voting a mayor and city council and trustees and all of them. There'll be a fluoride referendum yet again, a plebiscite. And then the province is going to tack on some ballot initiatives, the Senate election, and uh, the question on equalization. So the topic up for uh, conversation at, uh, the, uh, at the City Council's Intergovernmental Affairs Committee today is whether there should be a similar question on the municipal ballots, on whether Calgary should get a fair deal, a fairer deal from the province. Because yes, like Alberta is a net contributor to Canada, Calgary is a net contributor to Alberta. So does that need to be addressed in some way? And what's the best way to move that conversation forward? So City Council will uh, discuss uh, next week whether to put that referendum question on the municipal ballot. Joining us to talk a bit more about uh, the conversation today and uh, where it all goes from here. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Uh, Ward 9 City Councilor Giancarlo Carra who is also Vice Chair of the Intergovernmental Affairs Committee at uh, City Hall. Councilor Carra, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. It's good to be with you, Rob. Thanks for uh, shining a spotlight on this issue. Well, I mean, is this about making a point, or are we really talking about an actual question going on the ballot this fall? 
Well, it's absolutely about making a point, but it's also a conversation about whether we put that point on the ballot. And I'll tell you right now, I am I'm I'm torn on this one. So I would love to have a conversation with you about it right now and then and then just hear what people are thinking uh, as as they respond. So what what might that question look like first? Of all? Well, the question that's put before us was sort of anticipating what we expected the province to put out there. Uh, and so what what the question that we're asking is um, or proposing to ask that is is uh, should city council and the mayor advocate to the province for a fair deal for Calgary. And that's a pretty easy motherhood and apple pie hells yes, in my opinion. But the question is, in this age of gamified politics, what if Calgary says no? That would be an unmitigated disaster. The other thing, of course, was we were expecting a very similar question uh, from the provincial government regarding should, you know, should Alberta receive a fair deal uh, in Confederation or something like that. And uh, in between our crafting our question and them releasing their question, it seems that their lawyers got involved and they backed off of that question and got a little bit more specific about the question of, of equalization. And so it, it, it's not a tit-for-tat question, and that sort of further calls into question you know, how we move forward as the city of Calgary. Well, what, what do you think the, the underlying issues are here that, that do need to be addressed or at least talked about? Well, I mean, first off, I mean, the, the nuanced answer is that you know, Jason Kenney got elected by, you know, proclaiming, and, and rightly so, that Alberta sends a lot more money to Ottawa than it ever sees back. And the, as you said in your opener, the reality is that Calgary sends way more money to the province than we ever see back. We send way more money to Ottawa, too. A lot of the money that flows from Alberta to Ottawa is coming out of the city of Calgary. Um, I could make the same argument among around my colleagues uh, on city council. I mean, uh, Ward 7, 8, and 9 collect 50% of the property taxes every year. And that's even after the downturn in the downtown. And, and so, you know, the reality about taxation is that we're spreading the wealth to take care of ourselves as Canadians, as Albertans, and as Calgarians. And there's always going to be a transfer of wealth when you tax. That's the whole point of tax. The question is, are we doing it as fairly as possible? And the argument that we always make as the city of Calgary uh, is that the city of Calgary, even even while we're down and out economically, is still a goose that's laying the golden egg for the rest of the country and the rest of the province. And you got to feed the goose, and you got to make sure that the goose is well fed, so those golden eggs keep popping out, and we're all taken care of. Uh, I'm concerned that the gamesmanship of the UCP government putting this on the ballot is really about just trying to mobilize rage and misinformation and anti-Canada and separatist sentiment and really try and game who shows up at the municipal election when, when we should be having a very thoughtful and mature and nuanced conversation about how we move forward as a city. And so, you know, our, our conceptualization of, of, of asking a ballot question ourselves was an attempt to sort of counter that. And the question that we have before us and the question that I don't know the answer to is, are, are we helping or are we hurting? 
Should should Calgary get a fairer deal than we get? We absolutely should. And I can give you a tale of woe about you know money that was our money that was promised back to us to build things like the Green Line, to build things like the West LRT. There's just an endless litany of of promises that the province makes, and then they decide, yeah, we're not going to do that because it's not politically expedient or it's a little bit tight for us. And we need a fair deal because we can't build the city we need to build unless there's assurances that that money's coming. The UCP ran on on a platform saying they'd respect the Green Line funding, they'd respect uh, the city charters. They dismantled those as soon as they got elected. And does that resonate with day-to-day Calgarians? I don't think so. Will us asking this question make it resonate more with, with everyday Calgarians? I don't know. Or will it be gamed further? I don't know. What do you think, Rob? Well, here's what I wonder, too. And, you know, if, if the argument is that, that Calgary's not getting a fair deal, it's a different conversation than municipalities in general are getting a fair deal. Do, do you see this as an issue specific to Calgary, or are we asking the Alberta government to rethink the entire relationship with municipalities? Well, we have been for the last 11 years asking the provincial government to rethink the relationship with municipalities, and specifically with the two largest municipalities, two-thirds of the population of Alberta, Calgary and Edmonton. And we actually, with the PC government and then the NDP government, signed city charter agreements that began to historically correct that relationship, create a partnership table where we can talk about whose job should be what in this day and age. Keep in mind, when when, when, when Alberta was established, 15% of our population lived in cities and towns. Everyone else lived in farms and and worked the threshing crews. And and now 85% of our population lives in cities and towns and, and, you know, most of them live in the big cities and towns, and, and we, we, we are the economic engines that drive the province and, and the country forward, and we just do not have the right suite of re- responsibilities and capacities to fulfill those responsibilities that we need to to respond to the modern age that we're in and specifically to respond to the challenges facing our city right now. So we absolutely need a fair deal, and we were working towards that fair deal, And uh, we had assurances from the UCP government that they would honor the agreements that we had negotiated with two very different governments up until their election. And then those things started to get dismantled. And now we're bringing ballot questions that the provincial government doesn't really have any control over and that are really steeped in a lot of misinformation. And the question is, how do we hold our own in this gamed election that's coming for us? And do we ask that question and really pose it to Calgarians, and will that help, or will that further muddy the waters and hurt? I don't know the answer to that, Rob. It's freaking me out. <laughs> well, look, I mean, if, if anything's going to be put on the ballot, this or any other question, I, I guess time is of the essence here. So when would a decision need to be made by? We need to make it on Monday, Tuesday. This is this will come up on Monday's okay. council agenda, probably be decided on Tuesday. Committee today forwarded it, we had an in-camera discussion, and the agreement was that this is really a conversation we should have in public. And rather than rehash the in-camera conversation we just had when everyone rambled like I'm rambling, we said, let's take the weekend to think about it. 
push it forward to council without a recommendation, and then do the debate in public and reach a decision. And so what I'm going to be doing over the course of the next several days is is, is soul-searching and listening to people and trying to get a sense of whether this will help. Should city council advocate to the province for a fair deal for Calgary? The answer is absolutely yes. That's our job. And we certainly don't want Calgarians to tell us, no, don't do your job. Uh, the question is, will this help in, in, in the election, or will it just for, further muddy the waters? I don't know. The, the fact is, this is a politically gamed environment that we're dealing with, and we need to have extremely thoughtful conversations to make sure that we put our city on the right track moving forward. And, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're subject to, you know, the political gamesmanship of a provincial government, and uh, do we play games ourselves? Do those games help? Do they hurt? I don't know, Rob. What do you think? Well, I think it's going to be interesting to watch on Monday and Tuesday. Let me put it that way. Um, we'll leave it there. Councilor Karan, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate I'm sorry it. I couldn't be more clear in my own thinking <laughs> on this. I'd love to hear what, what the listeners have to say. All right. Sounds good. Thanks again. Uh, that's uh, Giancarlo Carraw, Ward 9 City Councilor, Vice Chair of the Intergovernmental Affairs Committee. So they discussed this today. Council will uh, discuss this on uh, Monday and Tuesday. So we have a point here. I mean, yes, Alberta is a net contributor to Confederation. But yes, Calgary is a net contributor to the province. So th- there are some parallels there. I, I would certainly concede that point. Well, a new report finds that uh, Canada's gaps in gathering data have had some real-world consequences in terms of responding to the pandemic, and also even now when it comes to the vaccine rollout. Uh, This is according to a report prepared by the Pan-Canadian Health Data Strategy Expert Advisory Group uh, that has been released today. And uh, I think it's important to understand, you know, why that is and, and what we can learn from that. Uh, joining us uh, to talk more about all this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Michael Wolfson, who's a fellow with the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences and elected member of the International Statistical Institute, formerly at Statistics Canada. Dr. Wolfson, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Glad to be with you. So when we talk about uh, the gathering of data in Canada in this context, what, what is it we're referring to? So it's everything from who has uh, become infected, when you do the tests to determine uh, what variant it is, uh, how many people are in ICUs, what's the level of uh, PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, uh, by neighborhood uh, over time. You know, that's the kind of data that uh, are of particular interest in the context of the pandemic yeah. at present. But Actually, the report is much broader than that because there's all kinds of other kinds of uh, health-related data where we have serious gaps and uh, problems. Why do those gaps and problems exist? Is this, you know, the question of, you know, having too many jurisdictions or does it go deeper than that? I think the jurisdictions is certainly a problem. You know, they, you know, it, quite naturally, the provinces each want to do their own thing. Uh, the federal government would like the provinces to collaborate. The provinces say, no, no, health care is our jurisdiction. Uh, so that's one aspect. Uh, I think, the, you know, it's very important to protect individuals' privacy. But my sense uh, is that we really are suffering from a privacy chill. There, there's, a, you know, an unfortunate imbalance. If you're the data custodian, 
you get into trouble if there's a data breach on your watch, but you don't get any reward if somebody is able to use your data in order to save lives or save money in the health system. So when we look at initially the pandemic response and how would having a, a better data gathering system or having more comprehensive set of data, how might that have improved our initial pandemic response, for example? Well, we're hearing a lot of debate, depending on which province you're in, about opening schools and the teachers are concerned about uh, whether they should be vaccinated before some other group in the population. But we really don't know how much transmission is happening in school. We don't know how many teachers are vaccinated or not vaccinated. So that's one example. Uh, we had a situation in one province uh, a little while ago where one part of the organization was keeping track of who was being tested and what the test results were. And another part of the organization was keeping track of who got admitted to hospital and ICU, but the two computer systems were completely separate silos. The people who were doing the analysis briefing, the, the, the cabinet and the premier of the province couldn't put the two data sets together to offer sensible advice. If I can give one more example, you know, it's been really tragic what's gone on in nursing homes and there've been mm-hmm. repeated and very strong calls for uh, regulation, uh, for example, on staffing, but we really don't have a clue. You know, Alberta actually has, I think, better than average data, but we really don't have a clue of going across the country about who's working where, uh, especially personal support workers. You know, nurses and doctors are one thing, but all these other professions that are related, uh, we don't know. So how do we go about addressing this? I mean, obviously, provinces aren't going to give up jurisdiction over health care. I mean, you know, there, there are rules and regulations when it comes to, to the sharing of data. You know, there's perhaps just, you know, bureaucracy that, that factors in as well. But where, where do we begin here in addressing that? Well, that's the real challenge. And uh, one thing that certainly we've discussed in the task force is to start with a shared vision that, you know, Canadians really need to understand how fundamentally important data is and, you know, basically pester their politicians to say, let's make it happen. This is crazy that, uh, we've, you know, people have died uh, because of uh, inadequate uh, data. The next thing I think is, is you know, one of the consequences of a, a strong public uh, uh perception and pressure on the political system saying this is crazy you know the airlines know every seat in the world uh, on an any airplane uh, we don't know the most basic things many of the most basic things about what's going on in healthcare uh, would be for uh, provincial governments uh, along with the federal government to sit down together and say well if you guys are vaccinating and keeping track of which a lot it is in your jurisdiction and somebody else in another at the very least you got to use the same definition of a vaccine and a lot so that we can compare what's going on. So common concepts and definitions are fundamental to decent uh, pan-Canadian data. And, uh, it, you know, you may have, you know, a given province may have invested in a computer system, but they uh, may have to change it a little bit. I think another problem is is the vendors of all these very expensive software systems. They have a clear self-interest in locking you in. If you're a doctor or a hospital, uh, they make it extremely difficult for you to move your data from one vendor system to another. Well, the provincial governments uh, who are funding all this and the taxpayers through them uh, really need to put their foot down and say, "Come on, no more." You know, if you're gonna, if we're gonna uh, fund the hospital or the physician's office to buy software, it's got to meet these basic standards. Well, and I mean, maybe the first step is acknowledging that we have a problem, and that's where this report is very helpful because, and, and it's maybe the nature of politics, governments aren't likely to 
admit these problems themselves. That, that's true. I think another area where, where we really need to do more work as a country and in general is, you know, when, when there's, uh, you know, you're, you're in an emergency situation and people are having trouble breathing, of course, the, the pressure on the, the politicians and the hospital administrators is we've got to throw more resources at, uh, you know, oxygen and uh, ICUs and things like that. But what people fail to realize, I think, is that when you step back a little bit, instead of running in circles or on the proverbial squirrel cage, if you had better data, you would be able to work smarter, not harder. And so there's this question of making the value proposition of having better information uh, much clearer. Uh, so that's certainly one of the things that I think the task force will be focusing on. Uh, and I, I certainly sympathize with frontline Healthcare workers, you know, if you're a nurse and in an eight-hour shift, you spend two of those eight hours filling in forms, but you never see any benefit from it, That that's not too cool. But if there's clear feedback on a regular basis that says, and you can see that the information you're providing is helping the organization work smarter and better and more effectively, that's part of the value proposition, and that loop hasn't really been closed as much as it should be. Indeed. Well, we'll leave it there, but uh, certainly a very important report. We'll see how governments react to it. Dr. Wolfson, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Well, you guys take care. You Bye. as well. That's uh, Dr. We- uh, Michael Wolfson, who's a fellow with the Academy, Canadian Academy of Health Sciences, uh, formerly with Statistics Canada, was a member of this uh, expert advisory panel uh, that does point out things that probably governments don't want to acknowledge. I mean, you know, governments would have us believe this. everything's fine. You know, the provinces release their case count, and then the federal people just add up those numbers, and here's Canada's case count, and here's how many vaccines we're doing every day, and everything's great. This report says, well, hang on a second here. We got some big problems. There's some big gaps, and there's been consequences from that. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.